Hebrews in chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Hear the word of God. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he said, as I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, They shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day today saying, through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Now, it was March 4th, 1933, that Franklin Roosevelt made his first inaugural address. And you might remember that in the throes of that Great Depression, he made this statement. He said, the only thing that we have to fear is fear itself. Now, I don't think that Roosevelt was making an absolute statement there. At least, I hope he wasn't. But he was taking note of the historical fact that in that time of depression, most certainly... Uh, depression and unstable financial institutions would be something to be feared. But the problem was that at that point in time, at least in his mind, fear had so paralyzed the people that the concern was that there would be no action taken, that it would just paralyze us and we'd be stuck there. The fuller quote is this. He said, I'm certain that my fellow Americans expect that on my induction into the presidency, I will address them with a candor and a decision which the present situation of our people impel, this is preeminently the time to speak the truth, the whole truth, frankly and boldly. Nor need we shrink from honestly facing conditions in our country today. So first of all, let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself, nameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror, which paralyzes needed efforts to convert retreats into advance. Again, I don't think he was making an absolute statement there that there is no legitimate fear, but we all know the fact that some irrational fear can paralyze us. There have been people so afraid of water that they've drowned in two feet of it. All they needed to do after falling in was stand up, but yet the fear gripped them, and what they needed to fear at that point wasn't the water so much, there wasn't that much of it, but their own fear, and they needed to come to grips with that and deal with that, the There have been some students, very, very bright, who have such a great fear of failure, have entered into classrooms and done rather poorly because they've been gripped by their fear, paralyzed by this irrational fear and unable, therefore, uh, to do well. By the way, kids, don't use that with your folks. They, They know the problem. But 
But that's true. Irrational fear can, in fact, grip us at times. But there are some legitimate, some real legitimate fears. Fears that really must be taken. And I think if I could paraphrase FDR, which I've tried to in the past in other situations to make it more clear to me, and that is the Great Depressions and unstable financial institutions are to be feared, but the Again, the problem isn't that we should stay there gripped by that fear, but that fear should move us from, as he puts it, retreat to advance, or what we might be able to say, from danger to safety. That fear, the value of fear in, the person, in a person's life isn't to stop you, but to get you going, to move away from the danger to a place of safety. Because you see, the author of Hebrews places before us this morning a legitimate fear. In fact, it may be the legitimate fear. In fact, if there's one thing to fear, it might well be this. He puts it in verse 1. He says, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear. If you have an NIV that says something like, let us be careful. That's, that's all right, but it's really soft. Uh, it really should be, let us fear. The, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. See, the great fear that the author of Hebrews puts before us this morning is that we should be afraid that we may not enter this rest, the very rest of God. So the question is, is why? Why do we need to fear that? And let me just give two parts of an answer to it. Number one is this, that we should fear lest we fail to enter because entering this rest is everything. That is, if we miss this rest, we've missed it all. If we miss this rest, then, then we've missed the whole of life. And secondly, it should be feared because he knows and he reports to us and they would have known from their own history and we know from the scripture that there were people who seemed to have every opportunity to enter this rest who didn't. And he's saying this rest means everything. And we know people, we know historically, we know folks who had every opportunity to enter this rest and they didn't, they failed. And so he says, if you want to be afraid of something, fear that. So why is this rest so valuable? Why is it so important? And it's important because it's God's rest. Turn back to Genesis, please, in chapter 2. Genesis in chapter 2. very obvious that Genesis chapter 2 comes on the heels of Genesis chapter 1. And in Genesis chapter 1, we have the creation account. Day 1, day 2, day 3, all the way through day 6, as you know. And then chapter 2 and verse 1 begins like this. Thus, the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now notice that on this particular seventh day, it's, it's, it's a bit different than the other six. If you've been reading through chapter one, you would have read this nice little refrain that went like this, that the evening and the morning were the first day, that the evening and the morning were the second day, the evening and the morning were the third day, and on and on, and the evening and the morning were the sixth day. But on this seventh day, it doesn't say, and the evening and the morning were the seventh day. It's just as if this seventh day just goes on for God. And it's on this day that he rested in his eternal rest. Now, just because he's resting doesn't mean that he's inactive. You might remember there was a time that Jesus uh, healed a man who had been an invalid for a long time. He came by him by this particular pool. 
and he healed him. And Jesus got in trouble, not from the man, obviously, but from the religious leaders. And he was in trouble because he had healed on the Sabbath. And on that day, it was said that since God had ceased from his work, that no one should do any work at all. And Jesus made this statement. He said, my father is working even as I am working. And so you see, when God rests on this seventh day, it doesn't mean that he's inactive. It simply means that he stops creating in that sense. All creation is done. And by that point in time, therefore, what we see in the rest of God, in God's rest, is that now he is enthroned over his whole creation. And everything, therefore, lives by way of his kingship, by way of his sovereignty. And thus to live in the very rest of God is to live in the presence of God, to live there in him under his sovereign power and grace, under his provision and care. The very rest of God. And I always think it's rather wonderful that God created Adam and Eve on the sixth day. So they went to bed, woke up the next day, and the next day was a day off. Have you ever thought about that? God was saying, don't worry. You know, most of us get up and we think, well, if I work six, then I can get the seventh off. If I work six to get all this provision, then I'll get the seventh off. But for Adam and Eve, it was exactly the opposite. They started out doing nothing. Because it was all right there. And God says, live in my rest. And what it means to live in my rest is that, that I'll provide for you and I'll protect you and I'll be there with you, my very presence with you. But you understand that Adam and Eve didn't live in the rest of God very long because they sinned, they disobeyed. And they moved, therefore, in their disobedience from rest to unrest. They moved from being in God's provision and care and kindness and blessing outside of this wonderful garden where all that was. And they lived then in an unrestful state. Now God, in his great kindness, said that Don't worry, a day is going to come when I'm going to conquer evil and I'll send my Messiah. And he'll restore everything. He'll conquer this evil one. And God gave two signs for people, most particularly the ones that he would call to be his, two signs that all this was true. One was he gave this Sabbath day, this seventh day, as really a day of rest. We saw it here in chapter 2. We see it more explicitly in the Ten Commandments where we're to take this Sabbath day and keep it holy and not do any work. Why? Well, to remind us, most especially then to remind these Israelites who would be formed into this nation, this kingdom, that to remind them that God rested on the seventh day and therefore they can rest in him that they can live under his sovereign care, that they can live by way of his provision, and that they can live by way of his protection, and thus be in that rest, you see, that peace, that assurance that I belong to God. And then he gave them a land. And he says, in this land that I'll divide among you, I will live and I will dwell, so that you'll know that I'm with you. And thereby knowing that God is with them and knowing that he's their protector and knowing that he's their provider, that would give them rest. In fact, when King Solomon dedicated the temple, the very dwelling place of God amongst his people, this is what uh, he said by way of benediction. You don't need to turn to this unless you're quick. First Kings, in chapter 8, verse 56, he says, Blessed be the name of the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise, which he spoke by Moses, his servant. The Lord our God be with us, as he was with our fathers. 
May he not leave us or forsake us. You see, he's saying, listen, here's the rest. This is the peace. This is the assurance that we have because God is with us. It's not unrest, which is living outside of this gracious presence of God, living under his condemnation and wrath. I mean, I don't know, but when I read these passages, there's a certain sense I can feel it. This is, don't get too weird. I'm not getting weird on you, but you can feel the warmth and the cold. When I read Genesis 3, I can feel the warmth of, of being in the presence of God, but then being cast out of that garden, you just get a sense of coldness that comes across your face, you see. If you don't feel that, it's not that you're unspiritual that I am. I'm just weird when I read. But, but you get that sense, don't you, figuratively. And here you get this sense that in the very presence of God, you're no longer out in the cold, but you're here with him. And notice how Solomon goes on. He says, he says May he not leave us or forsake us, that he may incline our hearts to, to him, to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments, his statutes, his rules, which he commanded our fathers. He's saying, listen, I know that the way that we live in this presence of God is by following Him, by obeying Him. Verse 59, Let these words of mine which I have pleaded before the Lord be near to the Lord our God day and night, that He may maintain the cause of His servants and and the cause of His people as each day requires. Now that little sentence is so valuable because Solomon is praying this. He He says, since we're in the presence of God, what we expect of God is that he will incline his ear to us and that our cause would be his cause, as every day requires. Whatever we need, whatever is required for us, by us, of that day, since we're in the presence of God, we'll trust him to bring it. Now, what could be more comforting than that? What could bring more peace than that? What could bring more rest, if you will, than that, the knowing we're in the presence of God and he's inclining his ear to us, meaning he's paying attention to us, and that whatever is required by us of that day, he'll take up. That will become his cause. That's the very rest of God. Now we know from history that the people did not live in this rest for all the centuries because we knew we know disobedience came when we worked our way through the prophet Ezekiel. We remember that the Spirit of God actually left the temple. That the people were actually exiled because of their disobedience. But then we hear of this rest again from the lips of one named Jesus. Turn to Matthew and chapter 11, verse 28. You've already heard this. It was our announcement this morning as you came in. Matthew chapter 11 and verse 28, from the lips of Jesus. He says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, it shouldn't surprise us that what God offers in terms of rest finally comes to fruition to us as promise. In Jesus. I mean, he's the very one in Genesis 3 that was going to come and conquer the evil one. And so he's the very one come to restore. And what he's going to restore, or how it can be described, is this rest. The very rest of God. And so Jesus makes invitation. He says, if you're, if you're burdened, if you're heavy laden, come to me. And in me you'll find rest for your souls. Because he says, my, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lonely in heart, and you'll find rest 
for your souls. Now that little image of a yoke is one that would be very common to the people in the days of Jesus. It's not quite so common for us, but a yoke was very helpful when a burden needed to be pulled, when a burden needed to be moved, when something heavy needed to go from one place to another. A yoke was very helpful. You could put a yoke on an animal. You could put a yoke on a man because it would, this yoke would fit around the shoulders of either an animal or a man, and it would more evenly distribute the weight of this load so it could be more easily pulled. We use various devices, little hand trucks to move things around and so forth and so on. But they used a yoke. And all that was well, but figuratively speaking, yokes became symbols for burdens. Yokes became symbol for bondage. A yoke became a symbol for slavery. Something that you're tied to. Something that you're weighted down with. Something that you're burdened with. And so if you were a slave and you wanted to speak of your slavery as not being so bad, you could easily say, my burden is light, lighter than yours. But for others, my burden is heavy. But either way, it came to stand for this burden because you had something to pull. Something you couldn't get away from. Something that was always there. And so when Jesus said his yoke is easy, burden is light. What? What did he mean? You get the sense that he was meaning, take the yoke off that you have, put my yoke upon you. Take the yoke off that you have and take mine upon you. Because you see, the yoke that a human being is tied to, the yoke that exists for us at our birth, of course, is the yoke of sin. This whole unrest. And so, we have this yoke of sin, this condemnation that follows us around all the time that we're pulling in. And the law really doesn't help us. The law of God simply reflects, you see, upon us by way of the glory of God and we find that we fall short of that glory. And so the law just keeps this thing getting heavier and heavier and heavier and heavier as we pull it through life. And then Jesus says, my yoke is easy. How is his yoke easy? How is it light? Well, it's light because first and foremost he obeys this law. The scripture says, Hebrews chapter 1, you know this already, that he is the radiance of the glory of God. So that when the law of God shines upon Jesus, he just simply reflects it perfectly. There isn't any dissonance at all. There isn't any sin there at all. And so you see, Jesus comes and he obeys the law perfectly for us. And so while he's obeying it, we're obeying it. And therefore, if we take off this yoke of having to obey the law perfectly to be accepted by God and set it aside and put his on, we're taking the heavy for the light. We're taking the condemnation for the pardon. We're taking the unrighteousness for the righteous. And he's saying, take this yoke upon you because I've already done it. And that makes it really easy to pull something that somebody else has already done. And then, of course, he takes the penalty for our sin as well. And so rather than pulling condemnation, we pull forgiveness. And forgiveness is really easy to pull. The law already being satisfied is really easy to pull. And so Jesus says, do you want rest for your soul? Well, I offer it, but you have to understand I can only offer it to those who are burdened and weighted down because they understand this weight of sin upon them. And when you get to that point, when you understand that, 
when you understand this weight of unrest, this weight of condemnation, this weight of sin that's upon you, and you want to give that up, and, and you want a light load, then come to me, take my yoke, because my yoke is, I've done it, and you're forgiven. So take that yoke upon you. And you'll find rest for your souls. And so you see, those who believe, that's how we enter into this rest. Notice Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 3. For we who have believed enter that rest. You see, you enter this by believing. You don't enter by doing. You don't enter by pulling. You enter by believing. The very fact that He did it and you're forgiven. That's the yoke that we take. That ties us to Jesus. And then we have rest for our souls. And so you see, we get that measure of rest and that's why Jesus could say to people, don't be anxious. In Matthew chapter 3, don't, don't be anxious about your body, about what you would wear, about what you would eat, because you, you belong to me. It's all right. That's why he could say to his disciples, peace I give you, not like the world gives, but I'm going to give you my peace, because this peace is the very rest of God. This peace is the very presence of God with you. This peace is the very forgiveness of sins. This peace is the assurance to know that I've already done it. And so that when the law reflects upon you, what reflects back is the glory of God. Because what reflects back is the one to whom you are yoked, Jesus. So relax, rest, be at peace. And we know a day is going to come when this will come to great fruition. Uh, chapter uh, 4, verse 10 says, For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. A day will come when all that will be laid aside and we'll see him as he is and we'll know his very presence and we'll rest first at our death as we find ourselves in the very presence of God. And then when Jesus returns to set up his kingdom on the new earth, we'll know the very presence of God as he lives among us and we among his. And that will be perfect peace, perfect rest. Our enemies will be subdued and gone. And all that we need will be right there. That's the very rest of God. And you see, if we miss that, we end up in hell. If we miss that, we end up outside of the gracious, providing, caring presence of God. And so to miss that is to miss everything. So the author of Hebrews says, listen, if you want to be concerned about something, if you want something to fear, fear, lest you miss it. Because the danger is real. He mentions a group of people. Notice in chapter 3, verse 16 of Hebrews, he speaks of these ones who were with Moses in the wilderness. He says, for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Do you see the, the relationship between disobedience and unbelief? Between not entering and entering. All disobedience has as its root a sense of unbelief. Even in the context of the lives of believers. You see, when, when I'm faced with a situation when I can tell the truth or not, and I choose to lie, it's because I fail to believe God. 
when he says, tell the truth. When I'm being impatient, it's because there's a root of unbelief there in saying, Bill, you're not God, I am. Trust me, trust my providence. And yet I find myself impatient because I want to be God. I want it to work out the way I want it to work out. And I want it to work out the way that I want it to work out right now. When I become angry, it's this sense of unbelief because I want vengeance to be mine, not trusting God. In the context of sexual sin, there's always unbelief because God is the one who says that he will satisfy all of our passions in the context of marriage. And thus, when there's sexual sin, there's this unbelief that says, yeah, I've read that, yeah, I know that, but but not in this instance. It, It won't satisfy. And so we sin. We envy because we don't believe that God has our best interest at heart. We envy because we don't think that God has given to us all that we need. And so we look at what another has and, and we say, oh, I know that God says he'll supply my needs, but, but he hasn't. So therefore we envy what another has. Unbelief always leads to disobedience. Disobedience always has this thread of unbelief in it. And the author of Hebrews says, if we're going to enter this rest, we need to believe. Of course we do. If we're going to live in the presence of God, we need to trust Him. We need to trust that He is. We need to trust that He provides. We need to trust that He protects. And so, there isn't any entering, there isn't any being in this rest without Him. All this raises then two more questions. Notice, chapter 4 and verse 1 and verse 11, I want to put them together. Chapter 4 verse 1 says, Therefore, while the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Verse 11 says this, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. You see, his point is, this rest is everything. That if we missed it, we've missed it all. His point is that we can only enter by belief in Jesus. His point is that there are those who heard that message just like we've heard that message, and yet they failed to enter because they didn't believe. And so his final point is this, then believe. And whatever is keeping you from unbelief, deal with it and be done with it. Because if you don't believe, you don't enter. So the questions raised are these. Number one, how is it then that I deal with my unbelief? What's the means by which I, I tackle it when unbelief comes? What's the means by which I can tackle this unbelief? That's next time. I don't have time to deal with that today. But this question today that I do have time to deal with is this. We don't have time to deal with it depending on what your lunch plans are. The question we do have time to deal with is this. Do I need to live in constant fear that I won't enter this rest? Do I need to live in constant fear of unbelief? Because, you see, it's unbelief that keeps me out. And so, as a believer, am I to live my life in constant fear of unbelief, in constant fear that I'm not going to enter this rest? Now, my gut sense is to first say, no, obviously not. As a believer in Christ, I'm not to live in that kind of fear. The Scripture assures me that if I've believed, I've entered that rest. The Scripture assures me that I'm not to be a fearful person. That I'm not to be anxious about things. In fact, even in chapter 2 it says that I was once a lifelong slave, 
to the fear of death, but no longer because of Christ. Therefore, I shouldn't fear death. So if I shouldn't fear death, why should I really fear this? So, so my sense is, first and foremost, no, I, I shouldn't live in constant fear, but yet I can't shake verse 1 that says, Therefore, while the promises of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. So let me amend my question by this one. In what sense should I fear? I mean, what context, what sense should I fear not entering? In what sense should I fear the onslaught of unbelief? I think like this. As Kansans, I think we should have a healthy fear of tornadoes. I mean, we know they they come. But the question is, what should we do with that fear? Should we live in constant fear of, of, of tornadoes? And my answer would be, no, don't live in a constant fear of tornadoes. And you might say, well, how can I not live in a constant fear of tornadoes? God bless her, my mother lives in a constant fear of tornadoes for me. And she lives in Florida. But she's always watching the Weather Channel, you know how they are, and they give you a call. I keep telling her, well, if you call and we don't answer, you know what happened. Um, so we like not to answer just to kind of keep them on their toes. Um, but no, we don't live in constant fear of tornadoes. We have a healthy fear, a rational fear of tornadoes, but we don't live in a constant fear of tornadoes. Why? Because this healthy fear of tornadoes drives us not to inaction, but to action. And so we take kind of the proper precautions about tornadoes. We, we have a TV and a radio, and we know, you know to listen to them to give us updates on these kinds of things. Uh, I have a window which I like to look out of, and that's my weather barometer. I think I don't trust those people sitting in Chicago um, telling me what my weather's like, so I just look out the window. But we, have, we look at those things. We learn to read the signs, if you will. We have a basement. We have friends with a basement. We have a plan to get there just in case a tornado comes. So we don't live in constant fear. We live in the safety of the provisions that we've made. But there is a time that one should live in the fear of a tornado, and that is when you're standing in your backyard and it's coming right toward you. And then you're very justified, very rational at that moment in time to live in the fear of that tornado. But what should you do? If your fear, as Roosevelt was concerned, if your fear simply paralyzes you, you know what will happen. You'll find yourself in Kansas City. Right? Uh, And not in very good shape. But, but if your fear doesn't paralyze you, if your fear does what fear is supposed to do, which is to drive you to safety, then you've responded well. And so you see, this fear of a tornado doesn't have to be constantly lived in because we make provision, but when it comes, then we know we're in danger, and then we need to flee to safety. The same is true with belief and unbelief. As you know, as well as I do, there are times when it's more difficult to trust God than other times. In fact, you may even know your points of vulnerability. Maybe disease, it may be something happening to your children, it may be something happening to your spouse, it may be something happening to your friends, your parents, it may be relational in that sense. It might be financial, you may know that you're just a person who's very vulnerable when it comes to financial kinds of things, and there are times when you get more shaky about that than other times, and that's a point of vulnerability for you. You know your own temptations when when sin begins to glitter like gold, and you begin to wonder, did God really say? 
And that thing seems so right to you at that point in time. And you get this sense. So we know that there are times when it's easier to believe than other times. Times when it's more difficult to believe than other times. And it's those moments in time, you see, that we should make provision for to get to safety. And where's safety? Belief. Trust. And so we should make provisions for these Facts of unbelief. And how do you do that? Well, of course you do that by being part of a church. You do that by knowing the scripture. You do that by your daily devotion. You do that by hearing sermons. You do that by listening to Christian radio. You do that by interacting with friends and being encouraged, as we found the other week, being encouraged, as long as it's called today, to encourage one another. All those kinds of things. Those are our general provisions for that. But you know there are times, there are times, when unbelief is right in our backyard, Nailing right down upon us. And we know we're in danger. And it's at those times the author of Hebrews says, be afraid right now. That's all right. Don't be paralyzed by your fear. But flee to safety. Go to your spiritual basement, you see, so that you can be safe from this onslaught of unbelief. Because, you see, if we miss this rest, we've missed everything. So he says, if if it's today, the last I checked it is, as long as it's today, if you find yourself in unbelief, he says, oh, flee to safety. Go to Jesus, you see. I used to love the old preachers. They would say, if you read books on preaching from the 18th and 19th century, which you probably don't, but I probably do, they always say, read your text and flee to Christ. You say, yes. Because that's where they're safe. He says, come to me. He says, come to me. If you're burdened, if you're afraid, the burden of unbelief, the burden of your sin, you begin to realize it's danger. He says, flee to me and I'll give you rest. Because in me you'll find someone who's done it, who's obeyed, who's succeeded, or you've failed. And in me you'll find forgiveness of sins. So flee to me. That's your basement, you see. So flee to Christ. And you may say, well, how do we do that? How, how, do, we, how do we discern when unbelief is coming? And, and how do we know what to do with it? I, I have to tell you, that's next time. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I do pray that just this one lesson would be ours to understand that the Christian life isn't downhill. But it isn't a life of just sort of ease. It's a life of putting to death sin. It's a life of, as Jesus says, cutting off a hand that offends, of plucking out an eye that offends, of understanding the danger of unbelief and not giving in to it, but fleeing to faith, fleeing to Jesus. So I pray for me and for us that we would know these times and then make provision for safety to know your word well, to know that we can simply lay back in your word and be in the basement of safety from the tornado of unbelief. That we can have friends who know us well and who can encourage us that we might maintain faith. That we might flee to Jesus at every moment. Stay yoked to him in our own consciousness and experience. 
we might know rest. No matter what the world looks like at the moment, no matter what our situation may seem, no matter how tempting sin may be. God, I pray that we may be a people that lives as far as we can possibly live this side of heaven in God's rest. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. As you do, I remind you that uh, elders are available to pray, so please take advantage of that. I remind you too, if you find yourself as one for whom it has dawned that you're still strapped to sin and its consequences, and don't leave here still yoked there, but trust Christ. The response to the benediction is, I believe in Jesus, amen. Now that means everything, of course. Because to say you believe in Jesus and mean it to be sincere as a confession of faith, you understand that you've entered that rest. And when you say amen, you say, that's the way it is for me. That's right. So please receive this as God's benediction. Now look to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before his glorious presence and that with great joy. To only wise God and Savior Jesus Christ to be glory, dominion, majesty, and power both now and forevermore. And all God's people said, I believe in Jesus. Amen.